Greetings, and thank you for joining us for this edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. I'm Mike Lewis, the managing editor of wherepeteris.com, and this is the second part of my interview with Pedro Gabriel and Claire Navarro. In part one, we spoke about Our Lady of Fatima and how the true message of Fatima, as understood by the people of Portugal, is nothing like the apocalyptic, conspiracy-fueled view held by many American traditionalists. In part two, I talked to Pedro and Claire about the response to COVID in their countries, as well as how our political polarization in the United States has spread around the world. I also want to remind you that on July 9th, Pedro will be giving a talk for the online Immortal Combat Men's Conference. To register for the conference, please click the link provided in the description or found in the blog post for this podcast on wherepeteris.com. Before we begin the program, as always, I would like to thank our Patreon supporters, especially Lisa, Chris, and Stephen. If you would like to support our work on Patreon, please click on the Patreon button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. Thank you for your generosity. We can't do it without you. Now, I would like also, because you led up to the question with some things that I would like to address, there was uh, an argument that I made on my articles in Where Peter Is about private revelation. Basically, it goes like this. It's something that I thought, because I think it's logical, Catholic is not bound to believe in private revelation, but to, to earn salvation. That's doctrine. I am not bound to believe in any private revelation, not even Fatima, which I believe and I like a lot. But a Catholic is bound to believe in public revelation. And that's not just scripture, it's tradition also. And tradition also teaches about the papacy, the Pope, the value of the magisterium, the vicar of Christ. That's tradition with big T. So it doesn't make sense that my salvation would be uh, would hinge on me following a private revelation that would tell me oh watch out the pope is suddenly starting to become someone unreliable okay so if i follow the pope my salvation is at stake so i need to believe a private revelation that supposedly is not necessary for my salvation to be saved from the bad heretical pope. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I think that's one of the things behind where Peter is. People accuse us of being heterodox or being leftists or trying to push this uh, heretical, doctrinally erroneous vision of Catholicism. But what I've always asserted is that we are simply applying to Pope Francis what the church has taught about the papacy. If the church teaches this about the papacy, then this also applies to Pope Francis. 
so when the CDF releases a document in 1998, that's a summary of the, of the teachings of the church on papal primacy. And it says that the Pope is the guarantor of fidelity to the word of God. There, there's no asterisk at the end of that. There's no footnote that says, unless he does X, Y, or Z, it's, it's to assure the faithful that trust in uh, and in our ecclesiastical unity, a unity that is the visible source of whom is the Pope, is the, is the path to salvation through the Catholic Church, as opposed to an abstract, you call it sola traditio, uh, I call it the imagisterium, but this idea that there is some abstract, yet concrete and objective set of doctrines that, that we must follow, whether the church actually teaches it on an official level or not. And, and we're to judge everything that, that comes out of the Vatican, that comes out of the church, that comes out of the Pope's mouth against that quote-unquote objective standard. So while we're on the subject of conspiracy theories and this, these various culture war controversies, you are a medical doctor. Now, granted, you're, you're an oncologist by specialty, but in a hospital in Portugal during this pandemic. And I know that you've been seeing, just as we all are, these, these varying theories and some are conspiratorial some of them are matters of judgment about how Catholics should respond. I'm a little bit uh, curious about your insights as, as a doctor, as somebody who has dedicated his life to the health of other people. And I know that you wrote an extensive response to R.R. Reno from First Things, who advocated for basically ignoring the virus and keeping our economy running and that sort of thing. I guess just from, from your perspective, now that we're well into this pandemic, I believe things are closing down in Europe a little bit, or the curve has been reversed. In the United States, it looks like we, we flattened and went down a little bit, but now we're going up again. What, what is your take on some of the rhetoric surrounding this? And what is your advice for how people should view the pandemic, the severity, and what steps we should be making to protect the health of ourselves and others? Well, one of the things that saddened me and surprised me, but I shouldn't be surprised anymore, was that this pandemic, again, should be the way to respond to the pandemic should be uh, something that should unite us because it's pretty straightforward. But once again, ideology polarized us and has made us divided on the, um, on the best way to address it. And unfortunately, what I see is that the reasons and the strategies that people come up with basically align more with political party lines than what actually is the truth. Now, there's something that needs to be said. It's the world as we know it, the modern world, has not experienced anything like it. There was the last instance of a pandemic like this is the Spanish flu 
and most of the people uh, alive today that had some kind of role in the scientific community those people at that time do not exist so this is the first time that our current scientific community is dealing with something like this and of course people governments media general population they are frightened and they are demanding quick answers so many things are being done on the knee okay scientific community needs to study things and that takes time just take an idea people are saying oh no there's no no vaccine and scientists are letting people die well the vaccine usually takes 10 years to be developed with all the tests to see if it's safe to see if it actually does the job and we might end up with a vaccine in one year okay so much of the um, different uh, takes that we see on the scientific community do not have to do with people not knowing what to do it has to be it has to do with the fact that we are doing our jobs at high speed and high pressure and for example, that's what we see in on the hydroxychloroquine controversy. There was a small study that showed, showed excellent results of hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin, an antibiotic. But the problem is it was a study that was small and flawed. But the problem is, of course, it's flawed because you're not going to get a very nice neat study on these conditions we need answers quickly we need to test quickly or people are gonna die mm -hmm. uh, and so of course we went with what we got but then the president trump said hydroxychloroquine is a miraculous drug and from that point onward it became polarized people who like trump just went up hydroxychloroquine is the best and people who hate trump just then took hold of every single thing that went against hydroxychloroquine and said, no, President Trump is doing propaganda again, it's, he's wrong. What, was, what were those things is basically, scientists saying, wait, wait a minute, this study has flaws in it. And they just take it, oh, it has flaws in it. See, President Trump is wrong. And basically that's the stage where we're in. There was a, a study in Lancet saying, that hydroxychloroquine did not have the impact it had. And it was a review, it was um, it also of other studies, it showed that the, the, the effect was not significant. But the problem is that Lancet article itself had flaws. Again, because it has been uh, done on, on the knee. And science is being weaponized and it's very sad because these debates between the scientific community, they take time, but they usually are confined within the scientific community. And they have spilled into media, social media, politics, parties, and that does not help us get down to the truth. What I say is just let the scientists talk about it and discuss amongst themselves if the evidence is 
conclusive or not, if the risks surpass the benefits or not, calmly, when we get an, an answer that has a minimum of consensus, you'll be the first ones to know, okay? <laughs> so we want to give you the answers, but calm down and please do not use them for political purposes. And that happens with everything, the masks, the social distance, the lockdown. These are recommendations from the World Health Organization. It's not perfect and it has not dealt with, the, with this perfectly, but who would deal perfectly with this unexpected situation? No one. So no, these recommendations are the best thing we have at this moment. So it doesn't matter if a politician I like says they are good or they're bad, just, just try to follow it. Uh, here in Portugal, these debates almost don't happen. Uh, we go to the mall, we go to the church, Everyone is wearing masks. No one thinks that their freedom is being threatened. Everyone does it out of respect for it. And Portugal actually had a very good answer, a very good response. There was a time when people were talking about Portuguese mirror. Now we are probably going to you know, get the second wave already. So I don't want also to boast them much because things are out of control in the capital, even though in the rest of the country, it's pretty much controlled. But we are a patient and obedient people. So we just do it and we don't, we are not feeling like we have been threatened. Uh, we don't, we simply don't understand the reluctance and the rebellion against these, these measures. We simply don't, it's too foreign for us. Well, yeah. Actually, I can probably understand it better because I've, I've been there. It seems that among American Catholics, at least, or, and largely on the American, it's both left and right, but on specific issues such as climate change or evolution, not only have we weaponized and polarized science, but we tend to introduce pseudoscience into the debate. Someone in the news will, will report on a study that has no credibility whatsoever, or some, somebody who is not a valid part of the scientific community. And because it suits ideological aims, they'll readily embrace that. And, and I, to me, it seems that it's a form of confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. It's sort yeah. of like if we go to the, to the, switching the two the two lucia conspiracy theory apparently it was first developed in 2005 so mm -hmm. the year she died it was an article that was written on on the website tradition and action well that's convenient yeah <laughs> and, <laughs> and exactly and the original article it started from the conclusion the idea that sister lucia would confirm these two things that we disagree with must have an explanation. Yeah, and Sister, there, Lucia, Sister Lucia would probably confirm these suspicions we have, especially now that she's dead. Exactly. Yeah. The, the funny thing is the original instance of this conspiracy theory was based on an article with a caption under a photo, and it was determined from other photos and other sources that they actually labeled the wrong woman. It wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't Sister Lucia. So it was like, 
this is before and this is after. And it was two different people. And then after that happened, they, you know, they doubled down. They were like, well, this is from Vatican Insider or inside the Vatican and they're supposed to be reputable. So if you, are you saying that they're not reputable? And it's like, yes, they mislabeled the photo. But then since then, people found photos that looked different. And then they continued to develop the conspiracy theory, which was started by a clerical error by, or a, an administrative error. But the thing is, it's like they worked from that conclusion and then they, they found evidence that supported that conclusion. I've heard it referred to by Jonathan Haidt, who is a, um, he, he calls it, he's a moral psychologist, where if you are determined, if you've already made up your mind about something, you'll look at evidence that supports it with the response, can I believe this? And evidence against it with, must I believe this? Yeah. And so your filter is, is much different. And, I, and it's a matter of human nature. And I believe that's what happens in the United States. And people exploit that. Well, it happens all over the world. But I think that uh, here in Portugal, too. But I think that while here in Portugal, that confirmation bias happens to validate one's own opinions. In the, in the U.S., it seems like it's to validate one's own political opinions. Yeah. Here and in it's, Portugal, it's more like, it's my opinion because I just, it's just my opinion. But mostly it's not aligned with any po politician. In fact, Portuguese people tend to be and tend to have this mentality. We are very obedient. We do not create waves. We don't rebel usually uh, very orderly, but uh, we are always talking, bad-mouthing our politicians. <laughs> we, prefer, we prefer to complain than to do. In that sense, the, we could learn something so with the active vigor of the U.S. politically. But yours, it seems from an outsider's view, your confirmation bias is mostly politically directed and is uh, aggravating the polarization. You guys seem to be very polarized. You guys seem to like, the, you created two different factions that can just cannot get along. And uh, basically everything needs to confirm my tribe and everything must demonize the other tribe over there. It's well, I, I think what has happened in the U.S., obviously we have a two-party system. And yes. something that both you and I have observed is that aspects of Catholic teaching have been split between the two parties. And so one party will stand for Catholic teaching on this issue, but stand for something completely horrendous on another issue. Correct. Um, and I think because of our two-party system, our political class has been able to tap into that. As you say, it's all people have this confirmation bias, but they've been able to raise it to a, a tribal level. They've been able to tap into that human tendency and weaponize it or unify people around uh, certain perceptions of that tendency. That's, that's my take on it. That's also very bad, not just for America, but for the rest of the world. Because that's something that me and Clara here confirms on her country too. The problem is that American politics and Catholicism, American apologetics, shapes 
the apologetics community and the pol politics community all over the world. So what we have been experiencing is that here in Portugal, my uh, people who belong to apologetics community here in Portugal are starting to get divided precisely on the same party lines as the US. And we don't, we don't have that here. Those political parties, they simply do not have any translation here. But suddenly, we are becoming divided on that. And we see the Pope as a heretic or as something or, or someone to not be followed based precisely on the party lines that we see in America. So Catholics that have fought here in Portugal, pro-life, uh, against abortion, uh, against homose homosexual marriage, suddenly they started to think that Pope Francis is a bad Pope because when they did their advocacy, they relied in American sites and those American sites started to mold them and they, and they started to think that those American sites, they are reliable. And yes, th that's a problem. So Claire, I have, a, I have a question for you because up until a little over a year ago, you lived in the Philippines and you spent time with the traditional Latin mass community as well as uh, an ordinary form commu community. You were deeply entrenched in apologetics culture in, in the yeah. Philippines. Are you noticing the same types of, of divisions over there? Okay, so just a quick contextualization. We are around 100 million and 80% are Catholics in population. So most of us are regular Sunday Mass goers and some are devotees of popular pieties such as the Black Nazarene, Santo Nino, Spanish for Child Jesus, Marian titles like our, our mother of perpetual help. You know, these are Wednesday Novena Masses that we usually go to. Our Lady of the Rosary, which is in many Marian sites, we are known to, to have devotions to her. And of their favorite saints, also like St. Padre Pio and St. Anthony of Lisboa, Padua. Now, those who are more active in the church, including myself, are rather a small percentage that are pretty dispersed in several communities and groups. Uh, back in the Philippines, I, I was active in those groups you mentioned for quite some time, Catholic apologetics, pro-life groups, and I even used to frequent the extraordinary form of the Mass, the traditional Latin Mass, as I love both forms of the Mass the ordinary form and the extraordinary form of the mass. So the divisions I encountered had some parallels and resemblance with the American divisions. In these groups, American apologetics are highly influential, but overall, both uh, countries, I observe, uh, Portugal and the Philippines has, has a much lower level of ideological polarization because in the first place, the Philippines is not even bipartisan since it has several uh, polit political parties. It's a multi-party uh, and no single party uh, controls the government as 
all these parties must collaborate, work with each other to form coalitions. Yeah, the, that multipartisanship also happens here in Portugal. It's also not a bipartisan model here. And, and I can see how the American influence would actually affect both Portugal and the Philippines, especially the Philippines, because of the levels of English fluency in, in both of your countries, and especially the Philippines. But I mean, Pedro, you were explaining to me that, that many, many people, especially your age and younger, are fluent in English in Portugal. So, yeah, but not as much as in the Philippines. No. Oh, certainly. Yeah, I mean, Phil I mean, English, uh, what percentage of, of Filipinos are, are English fluent, do you think? Well, I, I can say there's a, a rate, but English is like the, it's an official language actually, oh, okay. right now. So we have two official languages. It's English and Filipino. Okay. Based on what I've checked recently. Yeah, and I know when when Pope Francis went to the Philippines, he yeah. that was his first public attempt to speak English. So yeah, definitely widely spoken, and therefore because of the money in the American Church and 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 because of our online influence, I can I can imagine people are tapping into that. Also with the Philippines, are you because of your current regime? Politically, are you are you starting to notice more polarization along similar lines, like the conspiracy theories or the polarization? Uh, it's not like in the well. I would see some patterns that were adopted from uh, from the U.S. as well, but still, majority of Filipinos are uh, have these popular devotions. Problem is, we're not that doctrinal, I believe. But still, I think that would be, in a sense, better. Because by default, we love the Pope. We don't have this major debate that is happening in the U.S. It's similar to what Pedro said earlier. If you ask uh, a normal person going to Sunday Masses, a regular pew-going person, what do you think about the debates of a Morris Letitia? And then, okay, what's a Morris Letitia? <laughs> Doesn't even make much sense because in the Philippines, divorce yeah. is not legal. Yeah, so. there's a lot of things. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Divorce yeah. is not legal. Same-sex marriages is not legal. If I'm also allowed to tap back and kind of tie many of these things together, uh, Fatima, coronavirus, and American influence. Me and Claire were actually involved in a debate regarding the contingency plans of Fatima on the 13th of May, because 13th of May and 13th of October are the major apparitions of Fatima. It's the first apparition and the, and the last apparition. So they are kind of a big deal. So Fatima, because of the coronavirus, was closed at that moment. And they said, we're not going to celebrate the 13th of May for the first time in history. Or rather, we're not going to celebrate it publicly. The sanctuary is going to be closed. And we started to see people on social media saying, what are the Portuguese people doing? Why don't you rebel against this oppression? The clergy is bowing to the government and blah, 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 and all those, those things. And why are you accusing us? And why are you meddling in our lives? Most Portuguese here are heartbroken, but they are going to follow the law because, and they are going to be orderly. And that's precisely what happened. So uh, what gives, <laughs> basically? Uh, and there's some context besides this, is that 
Even before the government dictated a lockdown, the Catholic Church in Portugal took the, took the first step and closed the churches before the, the government lockdown. The, gover the government was actually one week delayed. And on the 13th of May, we had already flattened the curve and the government had already lifted the restrictions, many restrictions, not all, but the restrictions on religious celebrations. And the government, the prime minister, came to the palace of the, of the Cardinal of Lisbon, who is the president of the Portuguese Episcopal Conference, and I must say, this prime minister belongs to the Socialist Party. His party, his political party, actually is called the Socialist Party, okay? And he is going very soon probably to legalize euthanasia in Portugal. So I'm not a fan, okay, at all. But regarding coronavirus, they did everything well regarding the restrictions. And then the prime minister of the Socialist Party came to the Cardinal's house and said, I'm going to lift up the restrictions. And if you want, because I know that May is very important to you Catholics, I will allow with some restrictions that you celebrated in Fatima. And the Portuguese church, the rector of the sanctuary said, no, it's not responsible yet. So it was not us caving to the government pressure. The government was actually very gracious about it because they they like some uh, the, the prime minister was thanking the church the portuguese church for being so attentive to this problem but the director of the century said no we don't want to open yet it's too soon it's going to be a disaster and uh, the director of the century said to the pilgrims please do not come so this was the initiative of the church. And now they're going to tell us to rebel against the bishops. This is government oppression. There's no, there was no government oppression at all. There was a responsible take from the sanctuary of Fatima. Claire wrote a very beautiful article on that, on where Peter is, showing how the Portuguese react. Yeah, to send it down to what Peter said, as I just recently settled here in Portugal. I noticed that the Portuguese are very obedient. And what did I notice? Because of this obedience, you know, people wearing masks, the earlier the lockdowns were lifted, the contagion rate was lessened. And because of that, we can go out now. The curve was flattened, I think, around March. And Portuguese were April. very, yeah, or April, sorry. And Portuguese, they have this deconfinement plan. It was done in phases. So uh, let's say in phase one, we will open small shops, phase two, bars, but certain restaurants. Restaurants. Then, yeah, or phase three, malls, and then the church eventually. So I find it very effective and efficient that the government and the church here in Portugal are collaborating. I think that's the Catholic way. We are co collaborating yeah. for the common good. Actually, that collaboration is happening widely in the United States. I live in the state of Maryland, and we actually have a, a four-phase plan as well. Right now, we're in, we're in phase two of that, 
my particular county was a little bit delayed in adopting phase one and then phase two because we have the highest rate in the state. But the thing is, what you're finding is people rebelling, rebelling against the bishops, even more so than the government. They think that the bishops should stand up to the government, which is kind of what Dan Amiri's piece, he talked about how a lot of Catholics, and he didn't specify what country, but have this idea of a champion bishop, a bishop who goes out and stands up to everybody and, and denounces all the people they don't like. But just a couple of points of clarity regarding American Catholicism. Number one, just like in Portugal or the Philippines, online Catholicism doesn't reflect the entire church. There are a lot of Catholics who go to Mass, pray the Rosary, love Our Lady, and they're not super online, so there's not this, this huge awareness or this involvement in the debate. Unfortunately, what I've observed, and part of the reason why I was inspired to start Where Peter Is, is that you might have a group of 10 devout Catholic friends. Let's say they all go to the same parish. They're all part of the same Bible study. And only one of them follows these media sources closely or is involved in this debate. And the rest just want to go to Bible study. But what will happen is that one person will forward them an email about, let's say, the, the, the service in the Vatican Gardens right before the Amazon Synod, or <laughs> will forward them something that Vigano wrote, or will say, oh, the Pope believes that adultery is okay. And obviously these people, they'll have their friends, they'll, they'll say, they'll think, well, this is my friend who's informed, who's always followed the church, who used to talk about the great things that Pope Benedict used to say, and now is explaining to us that, this, that the current Pope is a heretic. Now, they're not doing their own research. They are well-intentioned. They're not, they're not super online. But what I find is that even if they have never read an encyclical in their entire life, they've developed this, and this is, this is widespread among devout Catholics. Even if they don't know the debates, they don't know the issues, they've developed this impression that Pope Francis is not a good Pope, that he's a heretic, that he's allowing all this craziness to happen. And that's the thing that really troubles me. I mean, Obviously, the people who are spreading these rumors are something worth addressing, but it's, yeah. it's people who are just vulnerable to these messages that they aren't even hearing firsthand necessarily, but then they hear there was pagan worship at the Vatican and Pope Francis said it was okay and they were worshiping Pachamama, and they don't know the details, but they hear this, they're horrified because they just take it at what they hear at face value. And it's, it's created this atmosphere of contempt for the Pope. The way that Americans seem to view orthodoxy is detached from the hierarchy. Like they, they seem to have this, I've been developing this theory and, and plan to write on it, but sort of this, this orthodoxy of piety as opposed to an orthodoxy of fidelity. So they have been taught that if they can't go to mass on Sunday, or if they don't go to mass on Sunday, it's a moral sin. So even if their bishop says, I dispense you from this obligation, the way that they read this is they think our bishop has just told us to commit mortal sin, and he must be evil. 
mm-hmm. as opposed to this is within the bishop's authority to say, you can, because they ignore the bishops. And, and there are all kinds of reasons, some of them legitimate for why people mistrust the bishops or have this innate break from the bishops. But basically, what's settled in for them and what made us this fertile ground for this rebellion against Pope Francis was this idea that orthodoxy was something that was that was self-contained. It is adherence to certain rules and rights and demonstrations of certain kinds of piety and certain kinds of cultural and political alliances and is not being in fidelity with and in communion with the Pope and the bishops. And I think, I mean, that's, that's kind of a lofty high level theory, but I, I don't know if that makes sense to you or if that, if that helps explain it. Yeah. <laughs> from... Well, majority, uh, not a few of us are, we're all sacramentalized, but not evangelized. I think you, uh, we've encountered that, that phrase before. There's a lot of work to do on catechesis. But then, yeah, how do you tie with orthodoxy? Because before, I used to, by default, uh, patronize some sites. These are bastion of orthodoxy that I see. And then later, I observed them. They became critical of Pope Francis. So, And then I'm in the middle, and then I told myself, is this really um, orthodox? And then after reflecting, praying, and then discerning, I realized that this is no longer orthodox. So your idea is a very good write-up for an article. And also, the, as we said, the idea that we need to address this is important because, again, it doesn't matter that only one person out of ten starts talking bad about Pope Francis. It, has, it is starting to have a global effect. It's starting yeah. to affect not just the U.S., but Portugal, Philippines, Europe, probably other places too. So it needs to be addressed. It needs to be stopped. This is not what Catholicism is about. This is something that has been created there in a certain mindset but it's not Catholicism. And if you go to Rome, if you, if you read the Vatican documents on church social doctrine, that does not exist. I always get this idea that, oh, these matters are matters of faith. You have to take it. But these other matters are prudential judgment. You can't just disregard them. That does not exist in the in magisterial sources. There is one CDF document from Joseph Ratzinger that said uh, a Catholic can cannot disagree with the Church on abortion and euthanasia, but it can disagree on matters of death penalty and ongoing war. And they just took that and made a that single sentence and made a whole theology out of it. But if you go to De Verbum. Uh, and they made their full theology out of it. And that theology says that n- now with Pope Francis says, oh, if it's not infallible, it doesn't, I, I can't disregard. And if you go to De Verbum, and if you go to the, if you go as far as the syllabus of errors from Pius IX, that's not true. You cannot disregard what the church says in 
matters and uh, teachings of faith and morals, even if they are not infallible, even in matters that are disciplinary, even in matters that are prudential, your default should be fidelity to, to the church. Dei Verbum says that going against those, it's extremely dangerous. And these pundits, these commentators, they do not do it like once, they do it all the time because they built a theology around it. So they built a theology around an idea that is dangerous to follow even once. And it should be only done like when the conscience of someone says, no, this cannot be true. This single issue here, I cannot follow the church. I would like to, but I can't. They stretch that so that they can just keep advocating their political theories and their political parties and uh, and not change according to church doctrine yeah they subscribe to either blind partisanships i political ideologists under under the pretext of prudential judgment you know it's funny because pope francis's papacy has actually been to me as an american catholic who looked at a lot of these sources and relied upon them for orthodoxy, it's opened my eyes to some of the errors that they made in the past regarding some of these quote unquote prudential issues, especially with regard to the death penalty. What Cardinal, then Cardinal Ratzinger was saying was the application of the death penalty. Not that we can disagree with the Pope on his teaching on the death penalty, it's just how to apply that teaching was what he was really saying. When I read more closely what the U.S. bishops had written about the death penalty and what John Paul II had written about the death penalty, I realized, wait a minute, they're using different criteria. They aren't following, they aren't thinking with the church on those issues. The same with economic matters and issues of war, the dropping the A-bomb on Japan during World War II, all of these things where they claimed they were prudential issues. Yes, you're correct. They, they created this, this entire theology a theology of dissent that they claimed wasn't dissent. And Pope Francis, in a lot of ways, has clarified, for those who are willing to listen, Catholic social teaching and Catholic teaching on these issues of justice and on respect for human dignity. And that, in many ways, is the rebellion. Just as in, the 19, in 1968 with Humanae Vitae, uh, yes. the rebellion was because, okay, we're willing to go along with you this far. But deep down, it was, I'm with you as long as you agree with me. So that's a very good point. Uh, Claire has to go. I can continue. Claire has to. Uh, okay, continue. absolutely. Well, well, thank you for uh, joining us. It was great finally seeing you in person and, and, and hearing your voice for the first time, Claire. I've, sp I've spoken to Pedro before, but thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thank you. Much pleasure. This concludes part two of my conversation with Pedro and Claire. Once again, we would like to thank our Patreon sponsors, especially Lisa, Chris, and Stephen. If you would like to support Where Peter Is, please click on the Patreon button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. If you would like to register to listen to Pedro's July 9th talk on Pope Francis and Silence, How to Defeat the False Angel of Light, please click 
on the link provided. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for part three, when Pedro and I will discuss last October's Amazon Synod and the claim that there was a pagan ritual performed in the Vatican. It will be posted in the coming days. Until then, God bless and take care.